Chapter 8 of The Man of Property. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Foresight Saga, The Man of Property by John Galsworthy. Part 1, Chapter 8, Plans of the House. Foresights, as is generally admitted, have shells, like that extremely useful little animal which is made into Turkish delight. In other words, they are never seen, or if seen would not be recognized, without habitats composed of circumstance, property, acquaintances, and wives, which seem to move along with them in their passage through a world composed of thousands of other foresights with their habitats. Without a habitat, a foresight is inconceivable. He would be like a novel without a plot, which is well known to be an anomaly. To foresight eyes, Bassini appeared to have no habitat. He seemed one of those rare and unfortunate men who go through life surrounded by circumstance, property, acquaintances, and wives that do not belong to them. His rooms in Sloane Street, on the top floor, outside which on a plate was his name, Philip Baines Bassini, architect, were not those of a foresight. He had no sitting room apart from his office, but a large recess had been screened off to conceal the necessaries of life. A couch, an easy chair, his pipes, spirit case, novels, and slippers. The business part of the room had the usual furniture, an open cupboard with pigeonholes, a round oak table, a folding washstand, some hard chairs, a standing desk of large dimensions covered with drawings and designs. June had twice been to tea there under the chaperonage of his aunt. He was believed to have a bedroom at the back. As far as the family had been able to ascertain his income, it consisted of two consulting appointments at twenty pounds a year, together with an odd fee once in a way, and, more worthy item, a private annuity under his father's will of one hundred and fifty pounds a year. What had transpired concerning that father was not so reassuring. It appeared that he had been a Lincolnshire country doctor of Cornish extraction, striking appearance and Byronic tendencies, a well-known figure, in fact, in his county. Bassini's uncle by marriage, Baines, of Baines and Bildeboy, a foresight in instincts, if not in name, had but little that was worthy to relate of his brother-in-law. An odd fellow, he would say, always spoke of his three eldest boys as good creatures, but so dull they're all doing capitally in the Indian civil. Philip was the only one he liked. I've heard him talk in the queerest way. He once said to me, My dear fellow, never let your poor wife know what you're thinking of. But I didn't follow his advice, not I eccentric man. He would say to Phil, whether you live like a gentleman or not, my boy, be sure you die like one. And he had himself embalmed in a frock coat suit with a satin cravat and a diamond pin. Oh, quite an original, I can assure you. Of Bassini himself, Baines would speak warmly with a certain compassion. He's got a streak of his father's Byronism. Why, look at the way he threw up his chances when he left my office, going off like that for six months with a knapsack, and all for what? to study foreign architecture. Foreign? What could he expect? And there he is, a clever young fellow. Doesn't make his hundred a year. Now this engagement is the best thing that could have happened. Keep him steady. He's one of those that go to bed all day and stay up all night simply because they've no method. But no vice about him. Not an ounce of vice. Oh, Forsythe's a rich man. Mr. Baines made himself extremely pleasant to June, who frequently visited his house in Lowndes Square at this period. This house of your cousin's, what a capital man of business, is the very thing for Philip, he would say to her. You mustn't expect to see too much of him just now, my dear young lady. The good cause, the good cause. The young man must make his way. When I was his age, I was at work day and night. My dear wife used to say to me, Bobby, don't work too hard. Think of your health. But I never spared myself. 
June had complained that her lover found no time to come to Stanhope Gate. The first time he came again they had not been together a quarter of an hour before, by one of those coincidences of which she was a mistress, Mrs. Septimus Small arrived. Thereon Bassini rose and hid himself, according to previous arrangement, in the little study to wait for her departure. "'My dear,' said Aunt Julie, "'how thin he is. I've often noticed it with engaged people, but you mustn't let it get worse. There's Barlow's extract of veal. It did your Uncle Swithin a lot of good.' June, her little figure erect before the hearth, her small face quivering grimly, for she regarded her aunt's untimely visit in the light of a personal injury, replied with scorn. "'It's because he's busy. People who can do anything worth doing are never fat.' Aunt Julie pouted. She herself had always been thin, but the only pleasure she derived from the fact was the opportunity of longing to be stouter. "'I don't think,' she said mournfully, "'that you ought to let them call him the buccaneer. "'People might think it odd, now that he's going to build a house for Soames. "'I do hope he will be careful. "'It's so important for him. "'Soames has such good taste.' "'Taste!' cried June, flaring up at once. "'Wouldn't give that for his taste or any of the family's.' "'Mrs. Small was taken aback. "'Your Uncle Swithin,' she said, "'always had beautiful taste, and Soames's little house is lovely. "'You don't mean to say you don't think so.' "'Humph!' said June. "'That's only because Irene's there.' Aunt Julie tried to say something pleasant. And how will dear Irene like living in the country? June gazed at her intently, with a look in her eyes as if her conscience had suddenly leaped up into them. It passed, and an even more intent look took its place, as if she had stared that conscience out of countenance. She replied imperiously, Of course she'll like it. Why shouldn't she? Mrs. Small grew nervous. I didn't know, she said. I thought she mightn't like to leave her friends. Your Uncle James says she doesn't take enough interest in life. We think, I mean, Timothy thinks, she ought to go out more. I expect you'll miss her very much. June clasped her hands behind her neck. I do wish, she cried, Uncle Timothy wouldn't talk about what doesn't concern him. Aunt Julie rose to the full height of her tall figure. He never talks about what doesn't concern him, she said. June was instantly compunctious. She ran to her aunt and kissed her. I'm very sorry, Auntie, but I wish they'd let Irene alone. Aunt Julie, unable to think of anything further on the subject that would be suitable, was silent. She prepared for departure, hooking her black silk cape across her chest and taking up her green reticule. "'And how is your dear grandfather?' she asked in the hall. "'I expect he's very lonely now that all your time is taken up with Mr. Bassini.' She bent and kissed her niece hungrily, and with little, mincing steps, passed away. The tears sprang up in June's eyes. Running into the little study, where Bassini was sitting at the table drawing birds on the back of an envelope, she sank down by his side and cried, "'Oh, Phil, it's all so horrid!' Her heart was as warm as the color of her hair. On the following Sunday morning, while Soames was shaving, a message was brought him to the effect that Mr. Bassini was below and would be glad to see him. Opening the door into his wife's room, he said, "'Bassini's downstairs. Just go and entertain him while I finish shaving. I'll be down in a minute. It's about the plans, I expect.' Irene looked at him without reply, put the finishing touch to her dress, and went downstairs. He could not make her out about this house. She had said nothing against it, and as far as Bassini was concerned, seemed friendly enough. From the window of his dressing-room he could see them talking together in the little court below. He hurried on with his shaving, cutting his chin twice. He heard them laugh, and thought to himself, "'Well, they get on all right, anyway.' As he expected, Bassini had come round to fetch him to look at the plans. He took his hat and went over." The plans were spread on the oak table in the architect's room, and pale, imperturbable, inquiring Soames bent over them for a long time without speaking. He said at last in a puzzled voice, "'It's an odd sort of house.' 
A rectangular house of two stories was designed in a quadrangle round a covered-in court. This court, encircled by a gallery on the upper floor, was roofed with a glass roof, supported by eight columns running up from the ground. It was indeed, to foresight eyes, an odd house. There's a lot of room cut to waste, pursued Soames. Bassini began to walk about, and Soames did not like the expression on his face. The principle of this house, said the architect, was that you should have room to breathe, like a gentleman. Soames extended his finger and thumb as if measuring the extent of the distinction he should acquire, and replied, Oh, yes, I see. The peculiar look came into Bassini's face, which marked all his enthusiasms. I've tried to plan you a house here with some self-respect of its own. If you don't like it, you'd better say so. It's certainly the last thing to be considered. Who wants self-respect in a house when you can squeeze in an extra lavatory? He put his finger suddenly down on the left division of the center oblong. You can swing a cat here. This is for your pictures. Divided from this court by curtains, drawn them back, and you'll have a space of 51 by 23 six. This double-faced stove in the center here looks one way towards the court, one way towards the picture room. This end wall is all window. You've a southeast light from that, a north light from the court. The rest of your pictures you can hang round the gallery upstairs on the other rooms. In architecture, he went on, and though looking at Soames, he did not seem to see him, which gave Soames an unpleasant feeling. As in life, you'll get no self-respect without regularity. Fellows tell you that's old-fashioned. It appears to be peculiar anyway. It never occurs to us to embody the main principle of life in our buildings. We load our houses with decoration, gimcracks, corners, anything to distract the eye. On the contrary, the eye should rest. Get your effects with a few strong lines. The whole thing is regularity. There's no self-respect without it. Soames, the unconscious ironist, fixed his gaze on Bassini's tie, which was far from being in the perpendicular. He was unshaven, too, and his dress not remarkable for order. Architecture appeared to have exhausted his regularity. Won't it look like a barrack, he inquired. He did not at once receive a reply. I can see what it is, said Bassini. You want one of little master's houses, one of the pretty and commodious sort where the servants will live in garrets and the front door be sunk so that you may come up again. By all means, try little master. You'll find him a capital fellow. I've known him all my life. Soames was alarmed. He'd really been struck by the plans, and the concealment of his satisfaction had been merely instinctive. It was difficult for him to pay a compliment. He despised people who were lavish with their praises. He found himself now in the embarrassing position of one who must pay a compliment or run the risk of losing a good thing. Bassini was just the fellow who might tear up the plans and refuse to act for him, a kind of grown-up child. This grown-up childishness, to which he felt so superior, exercised a peculiar and almost mesmeric effect on Soames, for he had never felt anything like it in himself. Well, he stammered at last, it's, it's certainly original. He had such a private distrust and even dislike of the word original that he felt he had not really given himself away by this remark. Bassini seemed pleased. It was the sort of thing that would please a fellow like that, and his success encouraged Soames. It's a big place, he said. Space, air, light, he heard Bassini murmur. You can't live like a gentleman in one of little masters. He builds for manufacturers. Soames made a deprecating movement. He had been identified with a gentleman. Not for a good deal of money now would he be classed with manufacturers, but his innate distrust of general principles revived. What the deuce was the good of talking about regularity and self-respect? It looked to him as if the house would be cold. Irene can't stand the cold, he said. Ah, said Bersenia sarcastically. Your wife? She doesn't like the cold? I'll see to that. She shan't be cold. Look here. He pointed to four marks at regular intervals on the walls of the court. I've given you hot water pipes and aluminum casings. You can get them with very good designs.
Soames looked suspiciously at these marks. It's all very well, all this, he said, but what's it going to cost? The architect took a sheet of paper from his pocket. The house, of course, should be built entirely of stone, but as I thought you wouldn't stand that, I've compromised for a facing. It ought to have a copper roof, but I've made it green slate. As it is, including metal work, it'll cost you eight thousand five hundred. Eight thousand five hundred, said Soames. Why, I gave you an outside limit of eight. Can't be done for a penny less, replied Bassini coolly. You must take it or leave it. It was the only way, probably, that such a proposition could have been made to Soames. He was nonplussed. Conscience told him to throw the whole thing up, but the design was good and he knew it. There was completeness about it, and dignity. The servants' apartments were excellent, too. He would gain credit by living in a house like that, with such individual features, yet perfectly well arranged. He continued poring over the plans while Bassini went into his bedroom to shave and dress. The two walked back to Montpelier Square in silence. Soames was watching him out of the corner of his eye. The buccaneer was rather a good-looking fellow, so he thought, when he was properly got up. Irene was bending over her flowers when the two men came in. She spoke of sending across the park to fetch June. No, no, said Soames, we've still got business to talk over. At lunch he was almost cordial and kept pressing Bassini to eat. He was pleased to see the architect in such high spirits, and left him to spend the afternoon with Irene while he stole off to his pictures after his Sunday habit. At tea-time he came down to the drawing-room and found them talking, as he expressed it, nineteen to the dozen. Unobserved in the doorway, he congratulated himself that things were taking the right turn. It was lucky she and Bassini got on. She seemed to be falling into line with the idea of the new house. Quiet meditation among his pictures had decided him to spring the five hundred if necessary. But he hoped that the afternoon might have softened Bassini's estimates. It was so purely a matter which Bassini could remedy if he liked. There must be a dozen ways in which he could cheapen the production of a house without spoiling the effect. He awaited, therefore, his opportunity till Irene was handing the architect his first cup of tea. A chink of sunshine through the lace of the blinds warmed her cheek, shone in the gold of her hair, and in her soft eyes. Possibly the same gleam deepened Bassini's color, gave the rather startled look to his face. Soames hated sunshine, and he at once got up to draw the blind. Then he took his own cup of tea from his wife and said, more coldly than he had intended, can't you see your way to do it for eight thousand after all? There must be a lot of little things you could alter. Bassini drank off his tea at a gulp, put down his cup, and answered, Not one. Soames saw that his suggestion had touched some unintelligible point of personal vanity. Well, he agreed with sulky resignation, you must have it your own way, I suppose. A few minutes later Bassini rose to go, and Soames rose too, to see him off the premises. The architect seemed in absurdly high spirits. After watching him walk away at a swinging pace, Soames returned moodily to the drawing-room, where Irene was putting away the music, and moved by an uncontrollable spasm of curiosity, he asked, "'Well, what do you think of the buccaneer?' He looked at the carpet while waiting for her answer, and he had to wait some time. "'I don't know,' she said at last. "'Do you think he's good-looking?' Irene smiled, and it seemed to Soames that she was mocking him. "'Yes,' she answered. "'Very.' End of Part 1, Chapter 8 Recording by Leanne Howlett